0: Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Marty Judah. What I'd like to do tonight is to survey, is to go through this sequence and as we do it, as we review this passage, I would like you to take note of some of the patterns that the Torah begins to give us. For those of us who have studied Torah for some time, and as Torah teacher, you've heard me say to this: any time that we see the Torah set up a series of patterns, a number of things repetitiously given, that we should always take note of those, because there is a deeper, there's another layer of teaching that goes with it um, in, in that particular place. And in this call of Abram to leave his land where he was living at his father with his relatives and go into the promised land to go into the land of Canaan. There is a series of events that will happen in Abraham's life, which lay pattern to something that is a greater thing trying to be explained to us. If you have heard me teach the Torah before, you have heard me say that in the lives of the patriarchs, in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see the patterns, we see the prophetic events, which will happen to their descendants. And in the case of Abraham, who is our first father of that set of three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's a set of patterns that will begin in his life that we find replicated, and it's a very clear example. What happens to him will happen to his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. And literally, what happens in his life, which would be regarded as history of Abraham, is in fact a prophetic message to those who follow after. And in this particular passage, I'd like to walk through and particularly take note of that. It begins, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Sometimes we... uh, We look at all the good parts, and we don't really look at what was the cost to Abram. Abram had to go through the process of leaving the place where he was safe and secure, the place that he called home, and he had to go to some place he'd never seen before, just because God had said so. Furthermore, he had to leave his relatives people that were bound by blood and family to be a part of, had to leave him because of the word of the Lord. And furthermore, it says he had to leave his own father's house. He had to leave whatever the benefit would have been from his father as an inheritance into the future to go to this place where God had said to go. In this day and age, for those of you who have come up and shared the testimony with me, that you have had to endure something similar. You have had to make a decision. Will you obey the commandments of the Lord and suffer rejection of your relatives, maybe even of your own father's house, of your friend's? of your social structure and so forth, because you made a decision to follow the word of the Lord. And you uh, kind of thought that if you were following the word of the Lord, that everybody should just stand up and applaud it. And to your shock, you found out everybody doesn't stand up and applaud when you obey the Lord. In fact, some of the people who are your greatest critics are people from your own family. Abram had to do this, too. I'm certain there was probably some interesting conversations between him and his relatives. I'm sure his relatives probably said things like, Abram, you're going to do what? Who told you to do what? You know, God told you to do this. I mean, you know, how did God tell you that? How do you know God told you to do this? And it doesn't really go into the details and say, it just says he did Kind of simply like some of you, brethren, have come up to me, hey, the Lord told me to to do this. Well, if you believe in Abram and the God of Abraham, then such things happen even today. And honestly, I think it's one of the first evidences of some of who the true sons and daughters of Abraham are. That they follow in the footsteps of their father Abraham and they obey the word of the Lord when they hear the Lord speak to them. Amen. Thus begins this first part, what I call the first part of the covenant that God is going to make with Abraham. Now this, I should take note of the fact that God is really doing something quite spectacular at this point as compared to what, he, what he's been doing in dealing with man. Man has been on the earth at this point some 2,000 years. From Adam through Seth and his descendants, up through Methuselah, up through Noah, the flood, the descendants of Noah, and we come to Abraham who is ten generations after Noah. And now God is going to do something really unique and different than the way he's done with man. He dealt with man in somewhat of a corporate nature uh, before the whole world. But now he chooses a man to make as a friend. And God is now going to develop a relationship with this man that will go forth. And he says through that man and his descendants, he's going to make promises with man uh, that will go on to their descendants, to the descendants of Abraham. As you know, it's kind of a little bit like Paul Harvey. You kind of already know the rest of the story. You know that from the descendants of Abraham, there'll be Isaac and Jacob. You know there will be the nation of Israel. You know the Messiah will come forth. And you know the ministry of the Messiah, the Holy Spirit, and the apostles will make its way all the way out to the nations to where you and I sit today. But we want to go back now and look at how was God beginning to do this thing that he's doing with us in our days. How did he start this? How did he start this relationship with Abraham, our father? It says that Abraham then obeyed the Lord, and he proceeded to leave there from the Ur of the Chaldees. And in verse uh, 5, he says, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, And they set out for the land of Canaan, thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I want you to take note, he appeared this time. Doesn't say he spoke, it says he appeared to Abram. Now we don't have a lot of the detail as to exactly how did he appear or whatever, but but he had a very interesting conversation with Abram and he said, and to your descendants I will give this land. So it says there that Abraham built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And this is the first altar that is established in the land of Israel at a place called Shechem. Later on in the history we will find out that Shechem, which means shoulders. There's two mountains there where Shechem is at. It will be ultimately the place that will be purchased by Jacob and will become the burial place of Joseph, which is now Joseph's tomb. It will also be the place after they buried Joseph there, that all Israel will stand six tribes on one mountain and six tribes on the other mountain, and they will pronounce the covenant of God upon the land of Israel for the descendants of Abraham. One mountain represents blessing. One mountain represents curse. If you go to the land of Israel and you see the place of Shechem, it's startling. One mountain is lush and green. The other one is barren and rock. Guess which one is blessing and which one is curse. It's very obvious. If you recall what was said here to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, O curse. God will later use the very place that Abram has put this first altar to proclaim the blessings and the curses of the Torah for the whole world to hear. It says there, verse 8, Then he proceeded from there to a mountain on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Altar number two. One is up in Shechem. Now this one's down a little bit further south into the land. And ultimately, as we read over a little bit further, In fact, it will be in chapter 13, and in verse 18, it says that he will build a third altar in the land. This place called the Oaks of Mamre or Hebron. And those places that he's established literally will become later on almost examples of places of refuge within the land of Israel in their future generations that will come. That's one of the first patterns that I want you to take note of, is the fact that Abram builds three altars in the land of Israel. One in which that the Lord appears to him, one in which that he calls upon the name of the Lord, and one in which that he resides, one in which that he will live there in Hebron at that place. What follows in the sequence of the story, at this point having built the second altar, is a very short story in which that because of a famine verse 10 of chapter 12 it says and now there was famine in the land so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land and it says that when he went down there Sarah, Sarai at this point is an extremely beautiful woman now I got to tell you we're going to have a different Torah portion that will cover it but Sarai, at this point, is not what I would call, you know, a real spring chicken. And she's in her 70s, I believe, at this point. So she's not like, you know, 22 years old and just coming away from the, you know, the uh, Miss America pageant. However, what it says of her at this age is she is a knockout. It says that she is so attractive that other men are naturally attracted to her. And when they travel down into the midst of the Egyptians, Abraham is so fearful of her beauty that he uh, collaborates with her to say, now when someone asks about you, you tell them that you're my sister. By the way, that's not quite a lie. The fact is, Sarai was his sister. She had the same father that Abraham had. But they didn't have the same mother, so that was how they were able to be married. And so she was his wife, but yet at the same time, by fathers, she was his sister. And it says that he was very fearful about going down into Egypt for fear that one of the men of Egypt would see this beautiful wife he had and just instantly kill him, you know, to have her. And uh, so he uh, talks her into uh, giving this alibi an explanation that she is the sister. Well, as it turns out, Pharaoh finds out about it and basically kicks him out, doesn't want anything to do with him uh, as a result of it. Why, why the story? Why put that little story in there? It goes back to the reason of what I said before about things that happen with the fathers will ultimately happen with the descendants. Why in the world did Jacob so willingly go down to Egypt with his whole family when a famine came to the land? I submit to you, Jacob knew that is what had happened to his father. And later in this passage, when God begins to establish his covenant, he specifically prophesies, God prophesies to Abraham to tell to his descendants, they will one day go down into Egypt because of a famine, that they will remain there 400 years, and then they will be coming out with the fourth generation. And it lays the foundation for why Jacob so willingly, who had insisted on coming back to the land of Israel, was willing at the end of his life to go to Egypt with his whole family. Why? Because it was a precursor that had been given to his grandfather Abraham of these events that would happen. And that they would go down to Egypt and they would come back up out of Egypt. And we will see more of the detailed prophecy the Lord gives uh, later in this passage. In any case, he goes down into Egypt, he comes back up from Egypt, and he goes back to this third place in the Negev. And there uh, he goes back to where the second altar is at, and that's where he runs into trouble with his nephew Lot. Lot has his herds and herdsmen. Abram has his herds and his herdsmen. They're not getting along too good. A lot of strife in the family. Family business not working out so good. And Abram decides that it would be best to not have so much strife. And so he makes the offer to his nephew, you go one way, I'll go the other. You choose where you want to go, I will go the other. And so that there will be plenty of land Uh, for our families to live. Lot makes the decision at that time that he wants to go to the Jordan Valley. It says at that time that the Jordan Valley was almost like the Garden of Eden. It was a very lush, beautiful place. Probably thinking in terms of uh, that there would be plenty of place to graze, you know, his herds and his flocks. There are some who also contend that he also knew about Sodom and Gomorrah down there. You know, maybe make a little money, you know, on the side. You know, we can sell some of our herds there, you know, so this could be a lucrative thing. And he's looking for material blessing, whereas Abram is willing to wait for the spiritual blessing. That's one of the contrasts that's set up for it. You could probably make a homiletic sermon out of that. In any case, Lot goes down there. Abram, he settles down into the place that we call Hebron at this point and then it tells us this very interesting story for some reason you're asking yourself Why do we need to know this it tells this interesting story in chapter 14 about the Canaanite kings? About how there's these four kings who come and do battle with these five kings and How that they all get into a big hassle and a fight and in the course of the event Lot is taken captive by the victors and hauled off and how Abram comes to the rescue of it the uh, I will give you these uh, the summation without getting into great detail but let me just give you the summation of what the sages of Israel say with regard to this that there's a much deeper clue that's being given to us because later in this passage we know that Abram is going to receive a new name called Abraham. We know that Sarai is also going to be given a new name, Sarah. To do that, to do that thing, God, all he does is add the letter het into their names. The fifth letter of the alphabet. Now the letter het, which looks like a, uh, really looks like a doorway. And in fact, the meaning of that letter uh, means that which comes forth. It also is the shape, as we will learn later on in the Torah, It is the exact pattern. As you make the letter het, as you draw it out, you make the exact strokes of what was done with the hyssop branch on putting the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel. And to the Hebrews, we know this letter means life you've heard the expression Laheim haim life comes from this letter het and thus we understand that that using that letter life it doesn't surprise us that we will find in the passover story the putting the blood over the door means life to us it will mean life being passed from death to life and, in the case, this is what's really happening with Abram, although he's been called, there's going to be a transition in which that he is going to be declared, if you will, of having passed from one state of a mortal frame to more of an immortal frame. He's going to move from the from the material to the spiritual, he's going to move from the natural to the supernatural. And in effect, what his life will become known to us is as a blessing of life. So God is going to add this letter into their names to put within them, in their covenant and their blessing, life into them for us. So that in their seed would all the families of the earth be blessed and receive life, you know, from him and through their life. And we will know it has to be the combination of the two, both Abraham and Sarah, as opposed to Abraham and Hagar, which is one of the examples of the descendants. But it says, no, that's not the one. It will have to come with Sarah in this particular case. The sages say that the reason why we have this story about these Canaanite kings is because this is part of the transition that is moving in Abram's life. From that of being concerned about his house and his household and to making sure that he's willing to expend his life and his resources for the benefit of others. And this transition from the number four to five is one of the spiritual clues that tells us about how they add the fifth letter into their names. It's kind of an intriguing uh, little thing, carries with it a great spiritual picture of how Abraham will become a symbol of life to us, and Sarah will become a symbol of life to us in the future. In fact, what happens is, this battle happens, Lot gets taken captive, and Abram loads up his servants, and he's got a bunch of them at that time, it turns out there's 318 men that are his servants. You know, you get the idea that Abram is out there with Sarah, and they're walking around with a half a dozen sheep, and hanging under one tent, you know, and they're digging a well. And No, there's a whole bunch of people. There's a whole bunch of people that left there with him, and they came with Abraham and with Sarah to that place. And so he has responsibilities for all of those families called in his house, in the house of Abraham. And uh, he goes and proceeds to um, successfully defeat the uh, victors, of the previous Canaanite battle, and recover Lot, and his men recover all the stolen goods. And upon returning, we meet another interesting individual or character in the Bible chronology. There at um, verse 18 of chapter 14, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. Now, if you were to go through the rest of the Scripture, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it tonight, but we could make the whole evening just to be the study of who's Melchizedek. Melchizedek is Hebrew for king of righteousness, Melk, Melek, king, Sedek, Tzedek is righteousness, the king of righteousness who lives at a place called Salem, peace, where we believe we get Yerushalayim, the city of peace, that he was the king of the first of the original Yerushalayim, which is of course the city of the king. Now, this particular king is a little bit different because he's the role of a priest as well as being a king. If you recall within the nature of Israel how they were formed, this is the descendants now of Jacob, the sons of Israel. The tribe of Levi shall be priests, but the tribe of Judah shall be the kingship. And they didn't mix them. They separated them. But here is Abraham. He's worshiping with the priest of the Most High God, and paying tithes to him, but this priest is also called the King of Salim. And we know, as it will come out later in the prophets, this is a reference to the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who is a king and who also does the work of priest. I'll take a little uh, sidebar here for a moment and tell you that this has been one of the great controversies of debate as to which role will the Messiah come and do first. Will he come and do the work of priest first, or will he come and do the work of king first? In the course of trying to answer that, there's a very interesting book of great antiquity, which is within uh, Jewish volumes in which they're trying to debate this point about King Melchizedek and in the debate they want to argue which is greater to be priest or king so therefore they'll answer the question what will the Messiah do first to do the debate this is classic Jewish debate they take the representative for the priest to be Aaron the first high priest of Israel and they take the king role to be argued by David, who was King David later on, uh, to argue the position of being king. So you have Aaron and David arguing as characters in this debate, trying to define which is better, priest or king, to be king or priest of Israel. In the course of the debate, it's a kind of point-counterpoint kind of uh, debate with very typical uh, Jewish kind of way of bringing out the truth, hammering out the truth, if you will. In the course of this debate, uh, Aaron uh, wins this debate. He defeats King David with one principle that King David cannot duplicate, cannot uh, outdo. And the point is over the issue of inheritance. You see, for a priest, with regard to inheritance, each one of his sons gets to be a priest, But with regard to the king, King David, only one son gets to be king. Therefore, it is better to be priest of Israel because of the reason of inheritance. Now, this book is a very interesting book because it concludes its final statement by saying, Therefore, the Messiah will come and do the work of priest first so that we might all receive the inheritance of eternal life. Then he will come as king to rule. Isn't that a fascinating Jewish text? Back before the Messiah ever came. And if you were to read there in the book of Ephesians, you would find that Paul's making the same argument. That through the sacrifice of Yeshua, we have received the inheritance of eternal life. And that he will soon be coming back as a king. This was this is part of the background thinking that has to do with how does Melchizedek fit into the great picture into the future of being Messiah of Israel. But we have Abram now paying tithes and bowing down to Melchizedek. There is a place there in John eight, where there was a moment that Yeshua was having a conversation with um, with uh, some Jews who supposedly believed in him, but as it turns out, really didn't believe in him. They just kind of wanted to give lip service to him. And in the course of the argument, Yeshua makes the statement to uh, these uh, Jewish religious people in his day in which that he says that something to the effect that he spoke with or he met with him, Abraham. And which that those in his day said of him, says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Abraham is a patriarch he's dead and buried he's he's down there at the grave he said you're not a man yet fifty years old how can you say that you spoke with her you knew Abraham and he answered and said before Abraham was I am now there's two great meanings that come out of that one we know I am is the expression that God used from the burning bush when he spoke directly with Moses and secondly, every good Jew knows Abraham bowed down to a certain king from Salem, who was a king priest named Melchizedek, which is supposed to be a type for the for the Messiah. And this is the place where the Messiah type spoke with Abraham. So... Yeshua is probably making reference right back to this passage of Scripture, at which point the Jews recognize and says, oh my goodness, Yeshua is making himself out to be God. He's making himself out to be this, this person here, whom Abraham bowed down to. And they did conclude it, I believe, correctly. That is what he was saying uh, with regard to that and drawing to it. What follows as a result of Abram? And what follows here is that uh, God now comes and to Abram in a vision and says the following things to him. Chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. We didn't sing the song tonight, but a very traditional song that we sing is, is uh, Magin Abraham." The shield of Abraham. Uh, Melchizedek, king, redeemer, savior, and shield of Abraham. We're speaking of God uh, in that regard that comes from this passage. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir, But one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. And if you're able to count them, and he said, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Each verse is almost a sermon of itself, just profound in its meanings. When we go out into the night sky and we look up and we see all the stars, you are seeing the sign of what Abram saw. You are seeing the very thing, God's promise to our father Abram that he would make his descendants as the stars of the sky at night. Now, if you were to follow what basic uh, astronomers can tell us, and I mentioned this to some of you out at Sukkot, they will tell you that there are approximately just over 500,000 stars that can be seen in the night sky by the the naked eye. If you go out in a very dark place, you'll see 500,000 stars in the night sky. And that's the reason why in the book of Numbers, God specifically commands Moses to count up and do a census of all of the children of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt after these prophecies are completed here. And to determine that their number is six hundred, three thousand, five hundred and fifty, so that it would be clear to all of the children of Israel that when they look into the night sky, that they see the sign that God's promise to Abram was right because they number more than the stars of the night, as God had promised to Abram. And he promised that it will come through one sun, that he would give him a son of his own body that would then result in number in that. I tell you, the number of stars in the sky, when you see the night sky, is every bit as much a sign of the promises of God as the rainbow is. We know the rainbow is a sign, God's promise, not to flood the world with water again. And we should be looking at the sky and realizing we've been numbered right up there with him. You know, that's God's promise, his sign to Abram, that he would make his descendants as the stars even more than the stars of the sky at night. And thus, even though that generation was judged in the book of Numbers in the wilderness, Yet they took another census again to prove that even though that generation was judged, yet God was still being faithful to the promise because there was still over 600,000 sons of Israel in that census as well. And to this day, I submit to you, there's still more descendants of Abraham alive on this world than there are stars that you can see in the sky at night. It's still a true promise even today. That sign is still just as, as good today as it was in the day that God gave it. And he proceeds to say to him some very interesting things. He gives him a promise of a son, and then it says of him, Abram, that because he believed this promise, that God would give him a son and give him these descendants, that it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now, we don't have time tonight to give you all of the basic Bible doctrines of salvation, but this is going to be a foundation pillar that will reach all the way to the New Testament, almost the exclusive reason why the book of Romans has been written, is to explain to us how faith and righteousness first came to be. The faith of our father Abraham was reckoned for righteousness. And if we're going to have the righteousness of God, it must be after the same pattern of our father Abraham. We must believe promises from God, not works of righteousness. Again and again and again. This lesson will be taught and men still can't get it. Religious men still twist this and still get it wrong. Righteousness does not come by keeping any commandments. It comes by believing in the promises of God. And then it's natural, once you know who he is and who you are, then it's natural that you obey just as a son would obey his father to receive blessings. A point I would like to make in this cycle of the Torah to emphasize. The reason why the Bible refers to, particularly in the New Testament, refers to these things that we'll read here instead of exclusively as Torah, I believe it refers to it as commandments, as law, as ordinances, and so forth. It's because of this simple dynamic. My son and I have a good relationship. Ephraim, my son, when I want my son to do something, I go to him and I say, Ephraim, would you please do such and such? And as long as his attitude toward me and the relationship between us is of one of him being an obedient son, those are simple requests from me to him. It is when he shifts and his behavior changes, his attitude changes and he becomes rebellious and he becomes disobedient to my request and my word, do I then take the very same request and turn it into a commandment and order him to do it and then require it of him to do it? And in every case, he's not going to get the blessing unless he does it. And if he doesn't do it, he's going to get curses. He's going to get difficulty from me, not good things. The reason I believe that we in the Bible tend to respond to the words commandments, law, is because our basic attitude is that of a disobedient son. I believe that if we, in fact, were obedient to God, if we were seeing him as abba father not as you know almighty god then we would discover that everything that he's saying is a request you know it's got please with it it's gracious it's pleasant it's not grievous or hard to do I can say the same thing to my son use the exact same words and if his attitude is one of being obedient and loving it's a request that he heard but the exact same words to him when he's being disobedient and his attitude is poor suddenly it's a requirement upon him same words same request it just got turned into a commandment all of a sudden because of his heart And whereas I believe, uh, learning from the example of Abram, our father, and of his son, I think God is trying to call us into a relationship in which that his words are not commandments, they're requests from a father. And that if we're obedient sons, that's the way we'll receive it. That's the attitude and tone in which that we'll read. And it will be a pleasure to do those things. Not a requirement, not a burden, not irksome or difficult in any way. And I believe it is a spiritual indicator, not of the go- tone God uses, but the tone of our heart as to whether or not we regard these words coming from our, our Heavenly Father as by being commandments versus them simply being requests of a loving Father. It's Uh, we determine whether or not we hear commandment or whether we hear request. And obviously God teaching us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might is to teach us to have the right attitude to receive his instruction, his Torah, as a loving, gentle thing, not as a harsh thing or with great difficulty or burden to do it. So having said that, we'll kind of lay that as a precursor for all the teachings of the Torah that we'll go through the rest of this cycle. And I intend to try to emphasize with you the word Torah, teaching, the teaching of a loving father rather than commandments of an almighty God. Because I would prefer you and your heart attitude to be one of being obedient to the Lord as opposed to being disobedient to the Lord and having to be chastised to obey The second part that Abram is now involved with is what I call the second part of the covenant. The first part was being called out and establishing altars. The second part is now he's being given certain promises of God, the promise of a son. And he proceeds through, as a result of this vision, to prepare a great sacrifice. In uh, chapter 15 and verse 8, he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? So he said to him, this is how you will know. Bring me a heifer three years old and a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. Then he brought all of them to him and cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Adam and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and after they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenesite, the Kadomite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. This is a passage we call the greater Israel. The dimensions that are given here that God gives for the land of Israel is far greater than any of the dimensions that Israel's ever had, maybe in the days of King David. Maybe then they came close to this, but we can't say with certainty. There is a promise given to Abraham concerning the land of Israel that has not yet fully been realized. All that we have from Israel at this moment, which is from the Jordan River over to the Mediterranean Sea, is what we call the down payment on on this great promise. But in the millennial kingdom, this will be the land of the descendants of Abraham. And the other prophets go through to describe how the land will be dispersed at that time. Take note of the fact that God is now prophesying to Abram to tell him what will happen to his descendants. The story of the Exodus the story of Jacob going with his family down into Egypt being oppressed for 400 years and then in the fourth generation coming forth have you ever wondered why when they tell the story of the Exodus why did Pharaoh decide to start killing babies Jewish babies the sons of Israel in the generation of Moses because he, too, had heard this prophecy. It had been on the lips of the Hebrews many times, that in the fourth generation, that we would be leaving Egypt. And obviously, Pharaoh knew there had to be some sort of leader that would come forth in the fourth generation. And thus, he was trying to kill the male children of the Hebrews in the fourth generation. Where did he get that idea from? Where did the Hebrews know this from? From this prophecy given to their grandfather, Great, 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 great grandfather, Abram, you know, at that time. You can see how the words here extend down and how they become, they're described as history, but they become prophecy to other generations that follow for it. Now, I want you to take note, that's the second part of this covenant that God has now made with him. And if we follow the rest of the story, we hear the story of how Hagar came forward, uh, gave birth to a child named Ishmael, God hears, and how God says no that's not the one we want to use. Even though he is a descendant of Abram he is not the one that God intends to use specifically with this covenant and thus we have now um, the stage being set for the birth of Isaac that will shortly follow. Now what happens is with the announcement of that for the birth of Isaac Chapter 17, it says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. You see, I thought I already had a covenant, didn't he? Did you see that? Did you get that part? Wait a minute. what, what, What happened to those altars that we set up? And God appeared to me way back there at Shechem. You remember when it said that we made an agreement that I would leave my father's house, I would come into the land, don't you remember we had a covenant there, right, God? Yeah. And don't you remember back some time before, you know, when I went down and I dealt with those kings, and I came back to Melchizedek and so forth, and don't you remember we split those animals apart? I walked between them. You walked between them. We made this great ancient agreement that said if either one of us break the agreement, maybe we'd be flayed apart like these animals were. You know, one of the ancient agreements. Didn't you call that a covenant? Yeah, we call it a covenant. Now he says, I'm going to still make another covenant. Wait a minute, I thought there was just one covenant with Abraham. There really is. There really is one covenant with Abraham. But what God is doing is manifesting the depth and the dimension to this covenant he's making with Abraham. And he goes on to say, Verse 2, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, for your name shall be called Abraham. And I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give... To you and your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Pretty strong words. And this is the third time now God is coming to make an agreement with Abram, now Abraham. And it's at this point that we constantly refer to him just as Abraham. And we understand when we talk about the covenant with Abraham, it's really all three of these parts come together. It's all three of these covenants that God made. But I want you to take note of something I slipped past you. The first part of the covenant that God made dealt with the issue of fathers. He left his father's house so that God would become his father, so that Abraham could learn to be a father. The second part had to do with the promise of a son. And there, they had a great sacrifice. In this third time that he's now made this, there's something very interesting that will take place. Look at verse 9. God further said to Abraham, Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money for any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The seal and the sign of circumcision. Guess what the New Testament tells us. It says... That when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that the circumcision without hands is done on your heart, and the Holy Spirit becomes a seal of the promise of eternal life given to you. Do you see the parallels? That the covenants that God made with Abraham, which we call all one covenant, has one part that emphasizes the Father, the second part emphasizes the Son and sacrifice, and the third part emphasizes the sign of the covenant and the seal of the covenant. Guess what we have in the New Covenant? We see the same thing. We see God gave us a covenant emphasizing the Father in the new covenant, the Son comes to make sacrifice for us. And as a result of him coming, he gave us the promise of the Holy Spirit, which seals us. It's almost like what's happening with Abraham is a foretaste of what the covenants that would be happening with his descendants. In fact, I submit that's exactly what it is. Now, we call it one covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham. But there were three parts to it. And they emphasized again, the plurality of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can see the pattern right there. There's this plurality. It makes for a very interesting question. If God made a covenant with Abraham, why are there three parts? Why is there an emphasis on the Father, emphasis on the Son, emphasis on the seal part? You know, at the end. And it's because I believe that it goes back to, again, the issues of what happens with the fathers will be replicated and what will be happening with their descendants. And in the case of us, I believe that we are the living examples of how we see all of it coming together. Paul emphasizes with us that we in the new covenant are in a very unique position in that the promises of God, the promise of a son that would come, just like Abraham looked for the promise, that we are the recipients of the promise. And that whereas faith was counted for righteousness, looking for the son, You know, we have our faith accounted as righteousness because we believe the promise of God. But you know, when you stop and think about it, Abraham went through the same thing. Abraham believed the promise he would get a son, and as we will find out, he does get a son. He does get a son. He gets Isaac. And in fact, in the very next portion, which begins in chapter 18, it specifically emphasizes that Isaac comes forth shortly thereafter. And then other things happen with his son that he will go through in Genesis 22. He will go through this symbolism of being offered up. The son will be offered up as a sacrifice. The binding of Isaac, which is next week's portion. The pattern is repeated over and over again through the patriarchs. Three fathers. Why does God have to use three fathers to illustrate to us? Why three fathers? Why does he have these three elements? of the covenant made with Abraham. Because one of the interesting things that we have about God, and it was pointed out to you before, is that God himself is illustrating and describing himself in a plural form. You remember in the earlier passages I read to you, let us make man in our image. You know, those are all plural forms, not singular forms of God. And if God is making a covenant with Abraham, a single man, don't you see that God, in manifesting himself through the covenant, it shouldn't be shocking or surprising to it, it comes in a plural form. It's part of manifesting God to us. A couple of years ago, I received a call uh, from a fellow Jewish man who was not a believer of Yeshua, and he called up and wanted to ask me as to um, why I believed in uh, believed in Jesus. And what is typical, what I've learned to do when you're talking to Hebrews about these kinds of subjects is you've got to use a little Hebrew logic. If a guy asks you a question, then you need to ask him a question. Don't be so quick to answer the question. You know, ask him a question back to him and get the dialogue going. And so I said to this fellow on the phone, I said, since you've asked me, do you mind if I ask you a question? He said, no, fine, go ahead. And I said to him, I said, do you believe that God is is attempting to manifest himself to us, mankind? And he thought for a moment on that, and he said, "Uh, well, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I said, do you believe that God was trying to manifest himself to us through Abraham? And the agreements that he made with Abraham was trying to show who God was. And, and he knew this Torah portion that we've gone through. And he said, well, yes, of course. You know, God is trying to manifest himself through Abraham, the relationship with Abraham. And I said, and so when Abraham had a son, a promised son, And Abraham's faith, believing in the promise, was counted for righteousness. Would it be possible that maybe God was trying to manifest that he, too, God, had a son that would be given to us as a promise? And that maybe Moses, when he went up on the mountain and we didn't like to hear the voice of God, and we said, oh, Moses, you go up and talk to God. Whatsoever he says, and you tell Moses, that's what we'll do. And that God promised us that there would be a day coming. He would send a prophet from the mountain who would come and speak the word of God to us. And whatsoever he said, that would be required of us. Because we agreed to that with God. God manifested himself that way. And we agreed that God had the right to send someone from the mountain to us. And that he would speak the word of God to us. And that maybe God has a son like he's illustrated with our fathers. And at that moment, that particular Jewish fellow, I'll never forget his words. He said, this is the exact words. He says, you have almost persuaded me to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. I mean, that's like right out of the book of Acts. You have almost persuaded me. How is it that you're going to persuade a Jewish person about Yeshua? I submit to you, you better start with Abraham. You start with Abraham. You start with where we can agree, and you go forward. Is God purposing something here for Abraham's descendants? The answer is obviously, yes, he is. He is purposing something for us. Now, as much as that I have given you the illustration of this Jewish person calling in, and he almost got it, but he didn't quite get it. I submit to you that you sitting in the audience tonight, hearing this teaching about Abraham, some of you are still at the point, you're almost persuaded that maybe Abraham is your father, but not quite. It's a wonderful Bible story. But that those promises that God gave to Abraham, you know, they aren't really for me. You're almost persuaded, but not quite. And I submit to you, they are to you. That the blessing that was given to Abraham and his purpose, that in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. By the way, you qualify as one of the families, therefore you qualify. That if you had that same faith to believe that God did give a son who did come from on the mountain high and did speak the word of the Lord to us, then you believe in the same promise of a son. That if you could go further and if you could understand the spiritual parallel and significance of the sign of the covenant to receive the Holy Spirit to be that sign and be that seal of this covenant that maybe you'd get it that the real substance and the real purpose of Abraham's life was primarily for his descendants, not for him. I submit to you, all of you who are parents here, each one of you measure and weigh your own lives right now, not in what is best for me, for you personally, but what would be best for my children, those who descend from me. And you will make decisions based on the real essence of your life is what would be to their benefit. And I submit the real decisions and the real issues and substances of Abraham's life was for his descendants, not for him. And that he surely understood that. I wonder if we understand that. I wonder if we really understand the words that have been written here are for our benefit. And that we would no longer look upon Abraham as some wonderful grandfatherly biblical character and that we would suddenly start seeing, he really is my father. Not too long ago, back about a year ago, I was able to go and teach a discipleship class out in California, and uh, I had uh, was there teaching. There was about 18, 20 people in the class. It was a whole week long, so I really got to give them. I mean, I really got to blast them, you know, for the whole week. And uh, it was kind of an impassioned uh, time of teaching and midrashing with them, and and uh, so forth, and. We took a break, oh, after about the third day or so, we took a morning break, and I had gone out and gotten a cold drink, and I was coming back in, and I got over here, two of the students talking, and there was one of the students was a, an older lady, and, and I just overheard this small part to it, and she said, you know, it's almost like when you hear Monty teaching, he really believes he is one of the sons of Abraham. I mean, he talks about Abraham like it's his real father. And as I walked by, I said, ma'am, he really is. It's not like maybe he is. He is. And he's your father, too. Don't you get it? Because if you don't get that, this won't sink in. These covenants, these blessings, they don't mean anything unless you can recognize that Abraham is your father also. I believe that's the reason why the story is given in such a manner is for us to begin by recognizing who who are these people the Lord is trying to emphasize through Abram trying to manifest because he's really it's it's exactly as he says here in his covenant chapter 17 verse 7 now this is God's purpose in making the covenant with Abraham I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I'm not asking you just to recognize that Abraham is your earthly father. I'm trying to get you to recognize that the God of Abraham is your God too. And you belong to the God of Abraham. Right from that beginning. If you can get that straight, if you can see that covenant being an everlasting covenant to all of the descendants. And you see yourself as one of the descendants and therefore as a part of that covenant and you see he is your God you are on the right course for everything that follows thereafter because if you don't if you do not identify with this God of Abraham at some point later you're going to have to do it and it's going to get real confusing and you're going to listen to other voices tell you, well, you know, God's different now. You know, he, that's the way he was back then, but now he's this way. And, and oh, by the way, when God made a promise back then, you know, it, well, that was for them. That wasn't really for you. I had a man in my office earlier this week, and he just couldn't get it. He just kept saying over and over again, well, that was, uh, that was what God did with them, with them. But he changed that now. He just kept saying that over and over again. And finally I stopped and I said, wait a minute, (laughs) you misunderstand something. I'm one of them. He said, "Uh, you're a Jew? Yeah. You're a Jew who can trace your ancestry back to Jerusalem? Yeah. Before Jerusalem? Yeah. I said, all the way back to Abraham. Because my fathers are all listed in here since then. And these covenants, I can see how they've come down to me. And while you're sitting there saying, no, it can't be, the book says, yes, it can be, and it is. And you know what? I'm going to believe what God says here instead of what you say. And he just couldn't get it. And I submit to you that for the study of Torah and for our walk of faith, amen, it has to begin back here. I didn't do it to you the first portion, but I'll remind you again you know, at some point back here in this book, in the beginning, you've got to start beginning to believe. You know, I really recommend to people is people start believing at Genesis 1 1. You know, when it says, In the beginning, man believed that God created the heavens and the earth. You know, somewhere some you gotta start believing somewhere. So you might as well pick it right from the beginning. And my emphasis of Abraham and start believing in the very promises that were given to our father Abraham. Start believing in those same things. Start believing in the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants, and make it your covenant, too, to your descendants as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of our father Abraham. We thank you, Lord, for the covenant that you did, how you called him out from his father's house, how, Lord, that you gave him a promise of a son. Lord, how that you sealed the covenant with the rite of circumcision. We know, Lord, that It will be taught to us by other teachers that those illustrate all of the things of our faith, of our new covenant faith, of our hope and in his sacrifice. To, Lord, to be sealed by the gift of the Holy Spirit, that that Holy Spirit would circumcise our heart before You, God to cut away the flesh so that we'll be just separated unto you only. Lord, we thank you for the simplicity of the teaching Thank you, Lord, that you're a great and awesome God who teaches us these principles from old. Who then does them in our own lives today. Lord, help us to get a handle on this, to get a grip on how we are part of this. How, Lord, that that letter, het, how it is added in to the name and life comes from it, of that alphabet put in our life, too. Lord, we know that our names have meaning just as Abraham's name had a meaning. And we know that your purposes are for good and to bless us and to prosper us. And Lord, ultimately to bring us back to live in the land that belongs to you. So, Lord, we uh, submit our hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that you begin even now to lay a sure foundation of faith in our hearts. To recognize who you are, the God of Abraham, to recognize that we are the children of Abraham, the true sons of Abraham by faith, and that we would recognize our proper place and role walking before you this day. Therefore, that it might be easier for us, Lord, to be obedient sons, to hear your instruction and see it as a request as a natural part of what we should be. And not disobedient sons, Lord, where your words are commandments or laws, but the Lord that we'd see it as a father's instruction, a father's teaching, a father's discipline. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the life of Abraham, our father. And we thank you, Lord, for your great plan to bring forth your own son to be a sacrifice for us. We thank you for all of this now. In Yeshua's name. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is post office box seven two zero nine six eight norman Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is net. Thank you.